Well, good morning. Whew, what a morning. All righty. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, chapter 5, is where we're going to be today. We're going to start in verse 9. I know I covered verse 9 a little bit last week, but it uh, is in this particular portion of Scripture, so we're going to recover it. Um, just to give you a little bit of a backstory as to where we have been, uh, we've looked at these different aspects in the book of Esther. Uh, Esther being unique that it doesn't actually mention God in any way, shape, or form throughout the book, uh, we sort of get these images of what uh, Jesus is in this book, and we saw that he is a greater king, a greater way, a greater bride, a greater death, that he died a greater death, that he's a greater mediator, and last week we looked at the, the fact that Jesus gives us a greater identity. And what we said last week is that uh, Esther, throughout this book, has been using her Persian name. She has two names. She has a Hebrew name and a Persian name. Uh, for most of this book, and in fact, the fact that this book is named after her Persian name, you can see that she had a conflicted identity, uh, that she didn't uh, want to claim her Jewish heritage. Uh, but then last week, we saw her fully embrace the fact that, well, it's going to live or die on her back. This is her thing now. Uh, she's going to do what she needs to do. She throws a uh, party for the king and for Haman. They get together. Uh, and so that's where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when he saw Haman, <laughs> when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. And we talked about this last week that Haman really needs a hobby. Like, 99 things has gone right. This is the one, he's just coming back from a meal with the king and the queen. He, in fact, he's, uh, in, in the next couple of verses, he's going to moan about this to his wife, uh, that he has got all of these military decorations, all this political power, all this greatness and wealth, and yet Mordecai didn't stand up and bow. Haman needs a hobby. He really does. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, well, that was good of him, went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions of which the king has honored him, and how he has advanced him above all officials and the servants of the king. He tells the story. Tell the story. They gather their friends around. Now, I am married to a storyteller. Now, <laughs> for those of you that have interacted with my wife on more than one occasion, you'll know that one of the favorite things that she likes to say is she embellishes to the power of 800. When it is 65 degrees in our house, she will say, It is 800 degrees in here. You know these people, right? I'm married to one, so it's a little bit different, but you know these people, the ones who get together and the story is massive, the story goes out, uh, they get everyone around them. Um, here's what's, what's really interesting about this story, is that Haman doesn't have to embellish. He is literally the second most powerful man in a kingdom that is the same size as the continental United States, that ranges every uh, person in the world to this point, except the Greeks, again, don't ask if it's all subject, uh, the Greeks managed to, to, to get out of it. But the Persian Empire was massive, and he's number two. So if you read the book of Genesis and you get to the story of Joseph, where you've got 
his political influence. He was able to uh, get the king to sign a decree that would destroy who he thought was his enemies and take on an ethnic grudge against Mordecai and the Jews. He is powerful. He didn't need to embellish. And so scripture tells us that he starts recounting the splendors of his riches, the numbers of his son. I have been fruitful. I have multiplied. My name is going to uh, uh, carry on after I'm dead. Everyone's going to know who I am. Fun story. That didn't change. Verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to, with the king. No one but me. It was the king and it was me and that's it. Come on, guys. It was me and the king. We sat down at the tables. We reclined. We kicked up our feet. We drank good wine. We ate good food. We relaxed in the presence of the king. No one else was invited. He doesn't need to embellish. He's got this, right? And then verse 13, it says, yet, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. We're going to get back to this in a moment. But I want you to remember that. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it then go joyfully with the king to his feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, we've discussed it in the past. Uh, even though it uses the word gallows, it is a mistranslation. It means a cross. Uh, in these days, people weren't hung by the neck, as you think. Uh, if you think Old West, they didn't do it that way. Uh, what they did is they got a giant post, they sharpened it at the end, and they hoisted a body on top of it, and just... <laughs> That's how they killed people, right? This is the Persians. They weren't nice people. Uh, and so he had a giant post made, mounted into the ground, that went 50 cubits up with a point on the end. His idea was that it was so high up, wherever you stood, you could look and see the body of his enemy. That's what he wanted. He wanted to proudly declare his victory in a way that everyone could see, everyone would be warned, if you don't bow to me, this is what happens to you. That's the intent here. It's an evil intention. However, I hope you notice something in this. Never underestimate the power or complexity of a scheming wife. The idea comes from his wife, Zeresh. Now, I know my audience, 90% of you are women. How well doing? If you are married... I want to say this, you've got to understand, I say this with the, with the greatest of respect, but when you're married, there is a lot of power in that relationship to shape the thoughts of your spouse. Whether you're the husband or the wife, um, nothing good comes from just without wisdom agreeing with everything your spouse says. If your spouse is wrong, as the other member of that family, you need to tell them that they're wrong. And I know that that's interesting and you wouldn't know well, that's not really the point of the scripture i don't know why i decided to put this bit in i was thinking about it and i thought it didn't really go but i want you to, to understand this nothing good's from nothing good ever comes from just complying from just being the yes person in a relationship uh jesus said that a relationship had to be equally yoked he said that both people need to believe equally the same things and they had to have equal responsibility in a relationship and while the scripture does say that the man is the head of the household and the woman is to be subject under that. It doesn't take any responsibility away from the women. 
but when her husband is doing something stupid, calling him out on it, right? And too many people who want to uh, have that perfect, outward-looking, perfect relationship, you know, the candy-coated relationship, they never hold their spouses accountable, and it's wrong and unbiblical. Um, my favorite story, uh, which I've discussed, I know, before, is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, in, in chapter 3, where Eve is tempted, it says that Eve was standing next to the serpent, and it says her husband was a, like standing next to her. Like he was a little ways off, uh, implying that he was an earshot, and yet Adam did nothing. The snake comes and says to Eve, hey, uh, if you eat of the, the fruit, you're going to be like God. And she says, no. And he says, I'm going to die. And the snake says, no, no. Adam's standing right here. And what Adam does is he gives away his his uh, his right. He gives away his responsibility to be the head of the household in that moment where he should have stepped up and been like, yo, snake, I was there. You weren't. God said this. Back off. Right? Now, I know, he's talking to a snake. Maybe he wouldn't have used those words. Back off. Slither off. I don't know. But in a relationship, it's really important that you not be like Haman's wife. She could have had the power to reel him back in. Haman, you just told me. You just told me you had all this money. You just told me you had all these sons. You just told me that you were the second most powerful person in this kingdom. You just told me that Esther and the king invited you to sit down with them and feast with them. You don't need to worry about Mordecai. Just let him be. He's an old Jew. He's sitting by a gate. No one really cares about him. He's crazy. Everyone knows it. Leave him be. She didn't. She said, how the gallows built? Take me through the pipe. Let's publicly execute him. Now, this is, this is what I want to draw from this story. I don't believe that Haman, and by extension his wife, know joy. When you look at this scripture, nothing in this scripture points to joy. What they know is happiness. What I want to do is spend the, uh, our time remaining together talking about the differences between joy and happiness. Talking about scripturally what we see and, and, and why it's important for us in this particular context. They know happiness. For them, happiness comes... From wealth, from power, from position, from the right relationships. So take a look at your life. Inventory all your relationships. Do you take happiness from the fact that the boss knows who you are? Oh, yeah, when, when the boss needs to make a decision, he calls me into the office. Oh, yeah, when this person does something, they think of me first. Do you take So-and-so only makes this amount. I make this amount. Mm -hmm. So much better than everyone else because I make more money. Do you take pride in, wrong, a wrongful pride, in your family position? Oh, yes, I'm married. So-and-so's not. They've been single their entire life. I'm married now. So these guys know happiness. They don't know joy. I said I wanted to go back to verse 13. And this is Haman's words here. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. Power, position, wealth, family, all of it, nothing. It means nothing to me, all of these things. Joy is an elusive thing. 
Joy is something that seems very easy to uh, be sapped, very easy to go away. Now, the definition is simply this. Happiness depends upon the happenings around it. Uh, I'm happy when I play Minecraft. We discussed this before. I'm sitting in front of my video game. I'm happy in that moment. I turn my console off. What happens to the happiness? It's gone. It, it, my happiness is depending on what is happening around me, what is happening to me, and what I'm engaging in. That's happiness. There's nothing wrong with happiness. Uh, happiness in excess is sinful, but happiness just by itself is fine. I believe that God gives us good things to enjoy. Um, for me, it is computer games. Uh, for you, it might be scrapbooking. It might be coffee with a good friend. It might be anything. Uh, happiness is not a bad thing, but happiness taken to excess can become sinful if those things that bring you happiness become more important than God. Are you with me? Okay. I see some blank, blank faces, some nods. I want more verbal, people. I've had a rough week. I want some verbal acknowledgement here. Yes, amen, preacher. Preach it. Okay. So happiness is depending on what is happening to you, happening around you, the things maybe you can't even control. And if that is how you've built your life, you've built it on a house of cards that is going to collapse eventually. If you study the human condition, eventually every single one of you will suffer at some point or another. Maybe it's already happened. If it hasn't happened to you, it will happen. I guarantee it. Put money down on it. It's a bet. It will happen to you. You will suffer. Because you're human and suffering is part of the makeup of the world that we live in. Things go wrong. And if you build your life around a house of cards that is just happiness, when that suffering comes, you've got no foundation to support you. The house is going to collapse and your entire existence is going to collapse. Listen, if your relationship with Jesus Christ is built on happiness and emotional feelings alone, when the rough time comes, you've got no foundation and even that relationship with Jesus will collapse. Because if you rely solely on being happy or an emotional response, now emotions are good, they're given to us by God, you can experience things, that's not what I'm saying, but again, emotions, if that's the only thing that your relationships are built on, it is a bad foundation. Are you with me? Okay, so that's happiness. And over in this corner, we've got joy. Joy is a little harder to, to, to nail down. I'm not going to lie. When you, we use the word joy a lot. We use it maybe in the wrong context sometimes. For a lot of people, when you think joy, you think the song, joy, love, joy, Joy is this elusive thing that we, we maybe equate with being happy, we equate with good, maybe. 
maybe, maybe blessings in your life, maybe uh, when, when your relationships are going right, your family is great, your husband or wife is, is, is you've got a good relationship with them, uh, maybe when your kids are actually doing what they're supposed to and not being kids and running around screaming and acting like wild animals, uh, maybe when you've got that promotion, maybe when you've got that money, maybe when all that's happened, you mistake that joy and you think, oh, this is joy when really that's just happiness because every one of those things could be gone in an instant. Just like that. Joy is a difficult thing to nail down. Joy is somewhat fleeting. Now, what happens is this. A lot of the times, a lot of the times, joy feels like it goes away. ago, uh, it came back and it had gone into her bones because she, she developed bone cancer. So she's undergoing treatment. On Tuesday, she had a seizure. She was taken into hospital and she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, the doctors say it is not a matter of um, how long, it is simply a matter of how long she's got to live. It's not a, she can get better from this kind of situation. Now, She's active in her church. She has a good family. She loves Jesus. She, she does everything that she, she does. She's a good, what I would call a good person. But what is central about my Aunt Rena is that she has a faith in Jesus that is unshakable. The first time she was diagnosed with cancer, her faith was unshakable. The second time she was diagnosed with cancer, her faith was unshakable. And even now, in this, I know that her faith is unshakable. And that brings me joy. You can be sad at a situation that is terrible, but still have joy. You can still have joy that you have your relationship with Christ and the people that you love have a relationship with Christ. Do you get that difference? Haman doesn't get it. His wife doesn't get it. They think that, that their joy comes from getting stuff, being in the right, being in power, being in position, being in authority. That's where they think joy comes from. And they've got it wrong. That's where happiness comes from. And happiness is fleeting. It is gone. If I didn't have a relationship with Christ, my when Aunt Rena gets sick, that is going to devastate me if I don't have a relationship with God. Because she's a good person. She's a good mother, a good wife, a good Christian. And so if I don't have a relationship with Christ, my first reaction is going to be, why did God do that to someone he said he loved? But because I have a relationship with God, because I understand the concept of suffering in Scripture, I'm able to take my joy from the fact that I know that my God has the best life for her that he can possibly give. And at this time, that mean, might mean that the, 
she's at the end of the race, that she's run the race with endurance, that she's claimed the prize at the end. There is nothing, nothing that says that this is a, a punishment from God, that God is striking her down or smiting her. Don't worry about that, it's just the toilets. <laughs> I saw, I saw, how does she look? Pay attention to me. I've got the mic, I've got the camera, and you pay attention to me. Thank you. Do you understand? Look, if we were to do a straw poll, if I asked you to raise your hand, I'm not going to, but how many of you have had people in your lives that have suffered, gotten cancer, gotten sick, had to go to the hospital, young people who, whose lives are laid out before them and they have endless, unlimited potential being struck down with diseases and sickness. The, the reality is that none of that saps our joy in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is based upon our solid relationship to Christ, nothing else. And look, one of the questions that I get the most often, the most often, is how do I increase that joy? Like I've got the joy of the Lord. We're doing well. How do I increase that joy? I'm going to tell you something. You can push back against it. I don't care. I know I'm right in my heart. I believe that you will increase the joy of the Lord in your life when you share that relationship with others. Not all of you are called to be evangelists. Not all of you are called to stand up and preach the gospel like I am doing now. But I guarantee every single one of you has people in your lives that God has placed there for you to share your faith with. And your joy will increase exponentially when you get to explain to another soul your relationship with God. Because it makes it real for you. You want your joy to increase? Share it with someone. And I'm not, talking, I'm not talking standing on the corner with a megaphone and a Bible preaching hellfire and damnation. I'm not talking about those guys. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you sit down in Starbucks or your coffee house of choice, Woods maybe, I don't know, but when you're sitting down and someone comes up to you, and they're like, hey, I saw you're so-and-so, aren't you? Yeah, I'm so-and-so. And you build that relationship and eventually you're like, well, what are you going to say? Well, I'm going to church. Maybe if you, per chance, every single Sunday, go to, I don't know, Burger King before service, and the people start getting used to you being there every single week for the last however many years. Where, where are you off to after this? Heading to church. Maybe, just maybe, there will be opportunities for you to tell people about your relationship with Christ. When Sunday morning comes around and we go through the drive through at Woods, we're in our uniforms. You say, well, are you a flight attendant? No. We're on our way there now. Small things. So many of us think that that evangelism is that big moment, that big conversion moment. It's not. The word evangelism simply means to preach, to talk. It means to communicate verbally. And I can guarantee you this. If you are like Haman and you build your life around happiness, your life is going to go off the rails. We'll see that next week. We will see Haman's life go off the rails. But if you build your life on joy, if you build your life on joy, I guarantee you it will not go off the rails even when suffering happens. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for giving us the time to come into your presence and to worship you.
I pray, Lord God, that uh, each one of us here can build a life that is based on the joy of our relationship with you, and that each one of us can grow that relationship more and more. And Lord, I pray that you give us the strength and the courage to take our relationship out into this world and to tell people about you so that our joy can be fulfilled and our joy can grow. Lord, be with us until we meet together again. I pray these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite Lenora to give her...